we're, we're here, and uh, we had a great vacation last week. We got to spend some time with family down in Houston, with her family, with my family, and then we were actually able to get away and do our own thing um, without Sydney, which was kind of crazy. Uh, for a couple days, Sydney stayed with Lexi's parents while we got out to, to Lake Travis outside of Austin, and man, it was, it was weird being kidless for a couple days. Kind of liked it, but then I was, of course, really glad to see Sydney again. But uh, if you were here last week, you got to hear an outstanding message. Um, Woody did a great job as he taught on changing our perspective on money, and you know, it just, it never ceases to amaze me. I, I've been here for nine months now, and I'm still blown away by how many godly, gifted communicators we have at our church that can just step right up. I mean, really, like, you guys don't need me. There's so many people here <laughs> who, could, who could teach and preach if, if I drop dead. But, uh, you know, you're stuck with me for now. So, But uh, the spring of 2008, so that's, that's six years ago, was a, was a particularly tough time for me personally. In the matter of probably two or three weeks, all of the following things happened to me. Um, first of all, the girl I was dating and I broke up. It was a mutual thing, but painful nonetheless. Then after that, uh, I got fired from this really great job that I had that was paying for all of my seminary. Um, I got uh, all of my friends, that my closest friends here in Dallas were all seniors or whatever you want to call it, final year of their studies at DTS. So they all graduated and moved on to other cities. And my family and I faced a really tough challenge as uh, one of my siblings actually found out that um, they were going to become a parent and they were not married yet. And so, as you can imagine, when all of those things happened to you in a matter of about two or three weeks, it felt like a crushing weight on my back. Um, all I wanted to do at that time, I was pretty burnt out on school, so I just wanted to drop out of seminary, go find some band to play drums with, for, and just tour the country and get away and leave everything behind. That's what I wanted. But that wasn't what God had in store. Instead, what he did is he kept me right here in Dallas, Texas, and I spent the following summer completely alone with God. He brought me into the wilderness and he used all of these things, all of these horrible situations, which I would say were kind of my own experience of thorns and thistles and God hedging up my way to show me his tough love. But then came a day that I will never forget. The day when the waters of God's grace flooded my heart like never before. I was driving along 183 over in Irving, kind of in between where 35 and 183 split off and the airport. And I was listening to a Matt Chandler sermon and I, I just, I mean, God's love took on a whole new meaning for me. For the first time in my life, as I was driving that day, I truly believed, truly believed and really knew in my heart that God loved me exactly as I was. Not the version of me that cleaned up, not the version of me that got my act together, but exactly as I was. Now, before that, I knew the gospel, but I didn't believe it in a sense of, was it, was it something that I felt and, and really impacted the way that I lived and, and, and understood my relationship with God? 
That day I had to pull over on the side of the road because I was just sobbing. I couldn't even see through all these tears. And they were tears of brokenness, but also tears of joy as I realized, man, even at my worst, God loves me just the same. And what was really neat that summer was that I had the gift of seeing all of this difficulty, all of it, this tough love, had a purpose. God was using it to bring me into the wilderness so that he could show me his tender love. So I would experience his tender love. And that's what God's tough love does. I kind of hinted at that when I preached two weeks ago. God's tough love, it prepares us and it, and it enables us in a way that other things don't to experience his tender love. It primes us for his tender love. And God's tender love is probably the most powerful aspect of his love because it doesn't just comfort us, it transforms us. God's tender love changes us. But how does it do that? How does it transform us and how does it change us? That's what we're going to look at today in in this passage in Hosea 2 verses 13 through 23, and so if, you, if you're not, if you haven't flipped there, go ahead and turn there. If you need a Bible, there's a blue one there in the back of the pew in front of you. So, so three weeks ago when we looked at Hosea chapter 1, we saw the covenant love of God. Two weeks ago in the first half of chapter 2, we saw the tough love of God. Today, we're going to see the tender love of God, and specifically, three ways that it transforms us, and then three questions that it, that it really probes us to ask. So we're going to look at verses 13 through 15 first, kind of walk through this a little bit at a time. In verse 13 it says this, And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. I purposely had us back up and read verse 13 because verse 13 and 14 next to each other does not make sense on one level. In verse 13, God declares that he's going to punish Israel. And then in the very next verse, he says he's going to allure them or woo them. Think of like the imagery of a, of a man who is romancing a woman. He's going to woo her into the wilderness to speak tenderly to her. But this is how God often does things. One minute we're experiencing tough love, the next minute we're experiencing tender love. But it's interesting that the place where God has chosen for Israel to experience this tender love is in the wilderness. Because when we think of the wilderness, we think of testing, temptation. We think of wandering. We think of death. This is the kind of stuff that happened in the wilderness in the Bible. But it is also the place of blessing. Look at verse 15. It says, God will give them their vineyards and vineyards and make the valley of Achor, a va- which, which actually, if you, if you translate Achor, it's trouble. So he's going to make the valley of trouble a door of hope. So this place that is, is, has been characterized by difficulty is going to be the very place where hope comes from. 
the, way, the place that they experience hope. And if you remember back to Joshua chapter 7, that's where what, what he's talking about. That's where Achan sinned by taking some of those holy items and he hid them in his tent. And then as a result, some Israelites died. So this was a place of, of, of sin and death. And God says it'll be a place of hope. I can't help but detour here for a second. That's what the cross is, people. That's a place where our Savior died, but hope sprung from there for the entire world. I mean, it's so like God to take the wilderness and let it be not just a place of of suffering and and death, but a place of life and hope. So God, God had this plan to transform this place. And then it says that Israel will answer him as she did in the days of her youth at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. That, that verse right there tells us the purpose of the wilderness and tells us what God does there. In the wilderness, God reminds us. In the wilderness, we remember what it was like to experience his goodness to have an unbroken, intimate relationship with him, as Israel did for that brief little moment right after he had brought them out of Egypt. God was going to take them back there. Almost like when you've been married for years and you go back to that place where you met because that was such a sweet time in your relationship. Pick on Kay and Lyles, they're not here. I'll apologize to them if they take offense at this. They're about to go to Myrtle Beach in like a couple of weeks because 30 years ago, that's where they fell in love. That's what God's talking about here. I want to go back to the place where we knew each other and we were madly crazy about one another. You were madly crazy about me. A couple weeks ago, we were looking at the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, which kind of parallels what we see here in Hosea, and I want to remind you kind of, you, you probably know the story, but just in case you've, you've, you're a little dusty on it. In the prodigal son, Jesus tells a story about a son who goes to his dad, who's still alive, and he demands that he give him his inheritance. And then he runs off to this faraway country and squanders everything in sinful, just lustful living. And then something happens. Let's look at Luke 15, if you you will, turn there with me. Keep your thumb in Hosea 2, because we'll be back and forth. But in Luke 15, 17 through 19, we're going to pick up the story. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven And before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. There in the pigsty, the prodigal son came to his senses. He came to himself. He remembered what it was like before he left home. It was there living with pigs that he was reminded of his father's goodness. So he decided to go back confess, asked to become just a slave, and so he left. He went. That's what the wilderness does. In the wilderness, 
We get alone, free from distractions, and we experience God's tender love and remember his goodness. The wilderness is a place of grace because it's where God's tender love reminds us of his goodness. The question, though, is will we remember his goodness? Will you remember his goodness? Let's look at verse 16. Flip back there. So after, after saying that he's going to do these things, woo them out there to remind them of what it was like when they first came out of Egypt, he says this, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. So God is promising a day when their relationship, when Israel's relationship with him will be changed. Now, he says that they will call him Isha, which in, in, in Hebrew is my husband, instead of my Baal, which this is really weird. You think of that as just being some foreign deity. Baal is actually another word that they had for husband, but it meant my master. So their relationship according to what God's saying, is going to change from this relationship of a slave under his master to one of those who are in love. It goes from fear and submission only to intimacy and deep connection. But how is this going to happen? I mean, it can't just, just all of a sudden come from nowhere, right? Look at verses 17 through 20 with me. As God... I want you to catch this. God in these verses says that he himself will do this, that he will do seven things. Verse 17, For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lay down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Israel will no longer call God my Baal, my master, because God will remove every trace of their idolatry. They won't even mention these idols' names anymore. God will also, also abolish all war and bring safety. And then the part that I love is that though a couple weeks back we read what was basically divorce kind of language, where God's like, you're not my people anymore, the severing of the relationship, God says, I will betroth you to me forever. He will buy them back. And to do this, it says that he will pay a bride price. And this is an interesting bride price because we don't really have that, that concept as much in, in our culture. I mean, yeah, we do engagement rings and all that, but in this culture, when a man wanted to take a, a, a wife, he had to give her family some things that were like a dowry, a bride price. It still exists in other parts of the world. Well, God says his bride price that he, that he will pay for Israel is righteousness, justice, steadfast love, and mercy. But these aren't just things that he's going to pay and then that's it. It's like a one-time transaction. What's really pretty about this is that these are the kind of characteristics that describe the relationship that they will have for God from then on. So this bride price is something that's going to be ongoing. 
But this is what I love. Then there's a trait that gets its own sentence in the midst of all of that. It says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. If you remember the first week we were in this book, we talked about Israel's problem, our problem is that we are utterly unfaithful to God. Completely, totally unfaithful. But God says he will betroth us to him in faithfulness. What we cannot accomplish on our own, he will do for us. And then comes the crescendo of it all. And you shall know the Lord. Last week we talked about how Israel forgot God, and that was the root of their idolatry. He says, because of all of this that I'm going to do for you, because of the relationship that I will make possible, you will know me, and you will never forget me again. This passage looks forward to the new covenant, which we read about in today's Old Testament reading, and I want to flip there briefly and read it again. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is what Jesus has accomplished. Hosea, Jeremiah are looking forward to what Christ came to fulfill. Because of Christ, we have been given the Spirit of God. His law has been written on our hearts. And in Jesus, our iniquity has been forgiven, and it is remembered no more. And the prodigal son himself experienced this in a powerful way. In Luke 20, the second half of the verse, after arising to go, to, go home, it says this, But while he was, a st- was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So the son comes back, ready to grovel his way back into his father's house, just as a servant. But when he's on the tip of the horizon, this old man girds up his loins and takes off running as fast as he can, bear hugs his son. I can just imagine he's like lifting his feet off of the ground with a smile as big as can be. And he kisses him. He doesn't even have to say a word. And in an instant, the son knows I'm forgiven. The slate has been wiped clean. God's tender love doesn't just remind us of his goodness, it also forgives us. And this is really good news, because I don't know about you, but every day I have a whole lot that I need to be forgiven for. If you want to know the specifics, you can talk to Lexi. Please don't do that. (laughs) 
But we all drop the ball time and time again. And it's so good to know that, that we have a God who makes a way for us to be forgiven, that he accomplishes that through Jesus, through his life, his death, and resurrection, so that we don't have to sit there and wonder and worry and, and just fret about, am I going to be forgiven or not? Yes, we are. But the thing is, is that this isn't automatic. It only happens for those who trust in Jesus and who seek forgiveness from him. So the question is, Will we receive God's forgiveness? Will you receive God's forgiveness? Second way God's tender love transforms us is that God's tender love forgives us. Let's look at the last three verses together in Hosea 2, 21 through 23. It says, And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, And they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. These verses paint a picture of a future that is radically different than what Israel experienced, and it is radically different than what we experience. It's really interesting, though. God promises to shower his goodness on the heavens and the earth and fill the earth with abundance of food. And what do those things happen to be? Food, the the food are grain, wine, and oil. Anybody remember the beginning of chapter 2, where that is what Israel sought as they worshipped the Baals? All of this is for, for Israel. Jezreel is another word for Israel. It's used as, as, a, as a replacement term. And God says that he will sow Jezreel himself in the land, for himself. And actually, did you know, the name Jezreel is actually translated God sows. But that's not the only tra- translation of Jezreel. Back in chapter 1, if you remember, it says in verse 4, And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. This is the first child that that Hosea had. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. In this verse he's talking about scattering Israel into exile at the hands of the Assyrians. Jezreel has a double meaning. It means God sows, but it also means God scatters. You can kind of see an overlap. You scatter seed, you sow seed. So in one moment, Jezreel means God scatters. It's tough love. But then in this passage, God sows forever in the land. It's tender love. And in this declaration, what God is telling them is though you're going to go into exile, you will not stay there forever. I'm going to bring you back, and this is going to be your home. This is where you will settle when all is said and done. And then God goes on to reverse the other curses of chapter 1, the curses of the other children. No mercy, that second kid, receives mercy. Not my people become, you are my people. And they will say to God, you are my God. All of this is God saying to Israel, in my tender love, I will restore you. I will restore you. 
And no, today's New Testament reading that, that Julie just read for us is Revelation 21, 1 through 5. And that's what this passage looks forward to. I want to read that. It says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Hosea 2 points forward to a day that is still yet future for us. But the beautiful thing is that in Jesus, God has made this all possible. In Jesus, God is making all things new. And there is a day coming when everything you see, everything that is broken will be completely restored better than it was before. In Christ, God is doing this. And in that day, we will never be unfaithful to God ever again. And as a result, we will experience unbroken, perfect fellowship with the creator of the world, our Father, and with, our, with his Son and with the Spirit. There will be no more war. Never again will there be a Hitler. Never again will there be Sudanese genocide. Never again will there be a 9-11. There will be no more tears, no more human trafficking, no more miscarriages, no more cancer. All of the pain and sorrows of this life are going to pass away, and they will never return again. God's tender love restores us. Not just back to where we were, but he will restore us to a place that is exceedingly better than anything this world has ever seen. And as it says in Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, this is because our God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us the power of his spirit. We have no clue what is coming. It will be better than anything. You, you could dream about it from now till the day you die, and it won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And the prodigal son experienced just a taste of this. In Luke 15, 21, the son says to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Here he is beginning his confession speech that he's rehearsed for however long it took him to get from that far off country to his home. And how does the father reply? He doesn't say a single word to the son. In verses 22 through 24 he says, listen, listen, listen. Grab the robe, the best robe in the house. Go grab my robe and you put it on him. You put it on my son. He says, listen, go grab a ring. Grab the one that has our family's signet on it and put it on his, his hand because he needs to know that he is fully restored. Go and find the best calf out in our pasture. You find the one that will make for the best meat and you go call all of our neighbors and we're going to have the biggest party that this town has ever seen because 
This son of mine who was lost is found. He was dead and he's alive. Get everyone you can. Tonight is going to be amazing. God's tender love restores us. Now the question is, will you rejoice and will you allow this love to restore you? I don't know where you are today. Maybe you're off living somewhere far, far away, making a mess of your life. I bet you can think back, though. I bet you can remember what it was like in your father's house, in his goodness, before you ran off. I bet you can remember. God longs to remind you of his goodness. Will you let him remind you? Will you remember his goodness? Maybe others of you, you remember God's goodness, but you're really struggling with a lot of guilt and a lot of shame because for whatever reason, you just can't get out of your mind the ways that you have dropped the ball, the things that you've done in your life that you're not proud of. What you need to know today is God longs to forgive you. He doesn't just kind of like sit there and wait and kind of, you know, maybe. He is looking for you, waiting for you, to come and ask for forgiveness, and he can't wait to give it freely. The question is, will you receive God's forgiveness? But maybe you're in another spot. Maybe you remember God's goodness. Maybe you've been forgiven, and, and, and you experience that. But this life, the pain and the sorrow that we all experience, is just weighing heavy on you. That could be something as simple as you watch the news and see what's going on in our world and your heart just breaks, saying, come Lord Jesus. <laughs> or maybe your marriage is dangling by a thread and you wonder, are we going to even make it another day? Maybe you're battling some sort of horrible disease or some sort of chronic pain or a family member of yours is. Just this week, one of our brothers here at Skillman found out that his mom has a brain tumor. Regardless of the specifics of your situation, the, the, the thing that is most important to know is that Jesus has promised to restore you completely, and one day it will happen. He gave his very life, his flesh, his blood, to ensure that that is going to happen no matter what. And right now, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding and mediating for you and for me, carrying the prayers and the cries that we have right up to the throne of God, making sure that they're heard, accepted. And one day he's coming back, and he's going to take this entire mess, and he's going to set it upside right, and it's going to be far better than we've ever, ever imagined. And because of that, we have an opportunity to have real hope right now, today. God longs to restore you with his tender love. Will you rejoice in God's restoration? Will you set your hope upon it and build your life upon it? Let's pray. Lord, this text is, is it's heavy, but it's also wonderful because we see that though this life is hard and though this life is full of pain and suffering, you have done something about it. You've sent your son, and in him... You are making all things new. We thank you for your tender love. We thank you that it reminds us of your goodness. For those who need that reminder today, Lord, I pray that they would remember, that you would help them to remember. 
But your tender love also forgives us. And that for those that need forgiveness today, I pray that they would come to you and that they would bow before you and humbly acknowledge that they need you. I thank you also, Father, that your tender love restores us. And I pray for those of us who need hope, which is probably everyone in the room, that we would know that real hope is found in your Son. And I pray that we would experience that in a brand new way today. Lord, give us the grace for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.